0: When policymakers look at the challenges the world faces, whether it's climate change or the COVID pandemic, they often say, we need a new Manhattan project to tackle these problems, or maybe a new Apollo program. But how applicable are these examples to modern challenges? Shouldn't innovation policy in the middle of a crisis like World War II be different from how we typically promote innovation? And if so, what can lawmakers still learn from these past examples of scientific achievement? I'll be discussing these questions today with Dan Gross. Dan is an assistant professor at Duke Fuqua School of Business and is also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's the author of several papers examining innovation policy in the World War II era, the most recent, which is Organizing Crisis Innovation, Lessons from World War II, which he co-authored with Bob and Sampat. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, Jim. It's great to meet you. And
1: uh, honestly, I've seen many of your posts with interest and and I'm flattered by your uh, uh, interest in turn. So, that is the best
0: way we've ever started a podcast
1: with your with your <laughs> with your
0: praising the host. That 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 really needs to become a regular part of what we do. That is a, excellent. Mutual It so really oils the no, what, mm-hmm. uh, well. Uh, let's start uh, by looking at or getting a sense of this, how important was science research to the Allies winning World War Two. Let's begin there.
1: Oh, wow. So great question. This will take us back 75, 80 years. So World War II uh, really was one of the most acute emergencies in U.S. history. It's hard to really put ourselves in the position we were in back then. It's hard to imagine now. Um, But this is a time when a a global hegemon was taking over continental Europe and the U.S. in principle was was next. Um, And so this was an era when uh, the U.S. initially lagged behind the technological frontier, of then modern warfare. And a handful of science administrators went to the president to point this out and basically ask him to fund our, uh, R&D um, in military technology. Now um, that ended up you know, proceeding and you know, what came out of that effort in World War II turned out to be not only immensely important to the war effort itself, but also yielded dual use technologies that found uh, civilian use in the post-war uh, era. And, you know, we since recognize as being you know pretty pretty standard today things from ranging from radar to mass produced penicillin to atomic fission.
0: Is it, is it is it generally assumed that these were uh, that these were that these were crucial um, advances? Obviously, we, most people know the the one advance probably we all know is um, our atomic bombs. But the mm-hmm. other advances, and I think there were also advances like with you know, bomb fuses and lo- there's lots of advances very important, but, but they were for sure very important.
1: Yeah. And it, what it's also hard to understate is that the breadth of this effort. So it's not just the scale, but it's also the number of fields, uh, that were invested in, um, and where progress, substantial progress was made during the 1940s. Um, so I only listed off a handful of examples, but if you, you know, jump more in the medical direction, for example, you know, advanced and basic understanding of, nutrition, of um, of, of various human stresses, like what happens to the body at high altitudes uh, or in, in, in frigid temperatures, you know, the progress that was made in everything from you know, applied technology and you know, digital communications and electronics and radar, all the way over to, to medicine, um, even over to surgical techniques, these are things that we actually continue to use, to use today.
0: Now, um, you mentioned sort of uh, applied. I would imagine that at the time, there was, con- there was considerable pressure on that whatever scientists and researchers were working on, that, that they had to keep in mind was, how will this help us win this war right now? We don't need research that's going to help us win the war, the next war in 20 years. We don't need some sort of basic research that eventually might produce something so I, so I imagine there's a lot of pressure to keep, to keep the research super focused on solving sort of very practical
1: wartime problems. It, it absolutely was. And so this is what makes crisis innovation problems distinct from innovation problems in, in regular times, is that there is uh, a crisis and the object of, of, of the R&D is actually crisis or solution as opposed to developing you know, basic science and improving standards of living over, over a longer horizon. Uh, and so there are a number of things that this agency, the Office of Scientific Research and Development in World War II, the OSRD, uh, was doing to try to support, uh, support this mission, everything from um, engaging uh, top contractors, so top scientists and, and, and top industrial R&D performing firms, uh, to uh, parallelizing R&D efforts where there was uncertainty. For example, you know, in the race to develop an atomic weapon, um, undertaking multiple approaches to, um, to, an, uh, uranium enrichment, um, not knowing which one would actually pan out first, um, to actually close coordination with the military, both in priority setting, understanding what problems were, were most important to try to resolve, uh, and were, were actually useful to soldiers in the field, uh, all the way down to, um, production and, and diffusion, what it would take to get technology into the hands of the people who needed it the most. As you've already mentioned, there's sort of one part of that science
0: effort that most people are super aware of. It's the Manhattan Project. And We also mm-hmm. know that policymakers are very aware of that example because it is super common that if there's some big problem facing the United States, someone will say, well, they'll either, they'll either say we need a Manhattan Project to solve it or we need an Apollo program to solve it. Right. Uh, how relevant are those examples sort of to, to, to innovation today, um, whether, whether you wanna call it crisis innovation or innovation more broadly as far as government's role, using those two as, as, as models? What can we learn and yeah. what you know, should we avoid?
1: This is one of the, the many things that has motivated my work on, on the World War II era is just how frequently, and especially, for example, in the past year, the World War II metaphor has been invoked. And th- that's a metaphor that in my view can be a little bit overused. And I think it's you know, useful to be a bit more specific in what it was um, about both the, the, the setting and the problem um, and also the approach in World War II that made it successful. Um, and we could reference the Manhattan Project, but really what I have in mind is the broader wartime research effort uh, because they all kind of run together. What made it distinctive is, first of all, the urgency uh, and, and the time horizon. And so while climate change is, of course, um, an, an urgent crisis uh, today, in the sense that if we don't take measures now, consequences will, will come to bear in, you know, 20 to 50 to 80 years, the threat isn't necessarily imminent uh, in, the, you know, in the sense of, you know, a year or two, two out or you know, even a week or two out, the way that, for example, the COVID pandemic presented a truly imminent threat to well-being. Um, and second of all, what's a bit different about something like um, the World War II period and, and and the problem then is that there actually was primarily a single user, you know, a, a single customer for the R&D effort, and that was the US military and its branches. And that actually is part of what made it, Uh, possible, that's part of what facilitated this close coordination in a relationship, which uh, really was instrumental to that effort, where you had military advisors, liaisons, sitting on research committees, um, helping to identify and come up with specific research proposals, um, and then also being involved in the translation efforts from effectively from bench to battlefield. Now, for something like uh, uh, pandemic times, That kind of model uh, might also fit where you can have coordination between um, the scientists and the science funding agencies, and let's say hospitals um, or county public health departments that are actually on the front lines fighting this battle. Uh, For something like climate change, uh, because the actual, let's say, user base is a bit more diffuse, it's a bit more difficult to apply this what I'll call command and control, uh, applied r&d funding approach
0: for sure um you have and an, you have a uh, a situation where not everyone first of all not everyone agrees it's a crisis and even if you think mm-hmm. it's a crisis it's not a, it's a crisis the worst effects may be many you know even though we may be see, seeing them now perhaps the worst effects are are are, are decades away mm-hmm. but yet i certainly hear the uh manhattan project example used all the time uh, even for people who are skeptical about industrial policy and government funding of applied research, they'll say, well, gee, you know, maybe uh, climate change, that is the one except that that seems like a, a, a crisis. So in what ways can we sort of apply these lessons uh, from the past Manhattan Project to climate change? And and, and what ways should we sort of not look, not look at those lessons?
1: Yeah. You know, one of the first order lessons that I come away with is, just how valuable um, investments in scientific infrastructure in ordinary times can be uh, when a crisis arrives to to have those resources ready. And that ranges from uh, basic science uh, and and, and progress and fundamental understanding of of natural phenomena that you can then draw on in a moment of crisis. Like for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the understanding that we had of messenger RNA that was then invoked in in vaccine development and then vaccine production, but also in having a highly trained technical workforce, uh, a scientific workforce in having agile and adaptive scientific institutions uh, that that includes universities, but also includes firms, R&D performing firms. Now, what's more difficult to think about in ordinary times, as we make investments in science and technology, is what fields are of strategic importance, um, and to what degree do we actually want to try to uh, select areas to invest in in preparation for the next crisis, or in preparation for you know whatever you know, the future might bring when it's difficult to forecast, and that because that borders on industrial policy and and, and a bit of picking. Winners and losers in technology space. It, to me, becomes a bit more of a tenuous question, and it's not really one that I think I'm in a position to advise. But perhaps the best approach would be to solicit feedback from, you know, technological experts and you know that that best scientists, and engineers uh, that our country has, you know, on call. But uh, it, it's a question that I just personally wouldn't quite know how to answer. Is um, what investments ought we to be making specifically in ordinary times in preparation for the next crisis. All I can say from, you know, what I've learned from the past is that, that advanced work eventually proved to be immensely valuable. So I'll, well, I'll, it I'll leave be, it at that.
0: Right. So I mean, in World War II, they were drawing upon sort of a deep reservoir of, of basic research, where where when that research was done, it was it was impossible to predict exactly how that might play out decades later or decades later in a in a global war. So you need to have that kind of reservoir there. You, you mentioned sort of mRNA with these with these vaccines. That that's not something we just had to sort of gin up on the spot, that there was something that there were that there were techniques already out there that we could that we could draw upon uh, and refine and turn into actual products that could eventually be jabbed into people's arms. So you need to have that that reservoir. And of course my one of my concerns that I brought up in on several podcasts is that it may seem so obvious to us now like that where, where funding should go, that funding needs to go into, uh, into, into batteries or this clean energy technology, or maybe it needs to go into this kind of new vaccine that we seem, or it needs to go into artificial intelligence and machine learning or this specific kind of art, artificial intelligence that we seem so confident we know exactly where, this, where, our, where, where, where funding should go that we're going to kind of forget about the other stuff that we're going to forget about basic research. Cause it just kind of seems off point right now when there's so many, you know, quote unquote obvious problems that we have to deal with.
1: Yeah. We could forget about basic research or the other risk to be quite honest is also that we might divert resources away from other fields that might yet hold promise. And one of the questions that uh, I reflect on in the world war two context, and also think about today in the COVID pandemic, as pharmaceutical research was diverted, um, uh, from problems of, you know, nevertheless longstanding importance to to COVID, to both COVID uh, vaccines and also to to therapies is what might've been left behind. And let's just take the World War II context for a moment. When you have the scientific establishment, let's say the country's physicists shifting from whatever work they're doing before to, you know, focusing their energy on atomic fission and radar uh, while we might celebrate, because it's easy to see what we got from that effort, it's difficult to know uh, and, and, and easy to overlook what we might have also left behind. And that's one of the questions I'm continuing to explore in, in my research, is what actually might have been crowded out at the same time as research and, and, and technology development in the technologies we now celebrate was crowded in.
0: Um. It, I was uh, I was recently watching a, a documentary about the uh, about sort of the the race uh, for supersonic commercial airlines between um, in Europe, you know, specifically Great Britain and France, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Uh, a race which eventually um, uh, was won by the you know Britain and France conglomerate, you know, created the Concorde. And so, during the sixties, we had Britain and France working on research. Uh, on on how to create a a commercial supersonic airliner while we while the united states was mostly focused on uh, uh on the apollo program getting to the moon and there was a great quote in this documentary from a uh a, a british uh engineer saying this this was our moon race creating a mm-hmm. commercial supersonic that was that was that was our apollo program and i started thinking oh well you know if not for the uh apollo program maybe you know maybe we would have uh, had the uh, there would be a, a burgeoning supersonic airliner uh, industry in the United States. And we sort of don't think about, as you said, what was sort of what was sort of lost? You know, what were the technologies that sort of weren't invented um, you know, because of this? Um, and, and, and your point about the, about funding, what do you uh, what do you feel confident saying about how much federal uh, R&D funding sort of crowds out private funding? How does that uh, how does that interaction work?
1: Oh, right. So there's, uh, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, and there, there, there certainly is, is work on this, but it's also a difficult question to answer because ultimately, uh, counterfactuals are, are hard to observe. But I think most of all, what I want, um, an audience to, to be mindful of is just that there can be crowd ups. It's, you know, it's actually very easy to, to overlook, especially when we think about some of these, uh, crisis moments um, and how productive we were in actually meeting the moment as we have been with vaccines today well certainly
0: i i think the success with the vaccines uh as well as a lot people look at china and they have these five and ten you know they've had a lot of fast economic growth they seem to be advancing and they have these 10-year plans which they've identified in sort of key sectors funding and it's uh if you look at those two things and you think well gee you know Policy makers can do it. They can, they they can they can they can pick technologies. They can devote funding to certain technologies, and get great results. But again, one uh, innovation or crisis can be different uh, than than other areas. We have sort of a specific problem you're trying to address, uh, as well as well as um, you know you have this you know, funding is freed up in a way that you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't see otherwise. Um, there's a, there are a lot of ideas right now about spending a lot more on sort of basic research. Uh, we've had, uh, I think, uh, we've had, uh, we had Jonathan Gruber on the podcast. So it was a very uh, expensive, I think, a trillion-dollar plan over 10 years to sort of try to create technology hubs mm-hmm. uh, around the country. Uh, what do you think of that idea? How successful uh, do you think that idea would be to try to, you know, kind of move innovation away from the coasts and maybe Austin, Texas, Boston, Silicon Valley, and try to create sort of top-down science hubs across America.
1: Yeah, so um, I I know John and his co-author Simon, and I've I've talked with them several times. uh, Given that our work intersects uh, a bit, and you know, I I appreciate I I very much appreciate um, how they're pushing these ideas. You know, being a younger scholar and 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 also um, being a bit more steeped in particularly the World War II era, uh, my perspective isn't necessarily to, to push a particular um, position on this, but rather, I guess, to, to highlight some of the trade-offs. Um, you know, I, I, would, I would say to really center this conversation requires going back 75, 80 years, again, to World War II, uh, because the OSRD in particular to meet the, the, the challenge of the moment really emphasized funding the best scientists, best institutions, and um, the best firms that were available. Uh, you know, the goal you know, in a crisis was to, to deliver results, the best results it could as quickly as possible. Uh, as a result, uh, much of this World War II era R&D funding ended up concentrating in specific locations, uh, uh, you know, different technologies being, being centered in different locations. And that ultimately led to policy debates, political debates uh, in the 1940s when uh, Harley Kilgore a senator from West Virginia, raised concerns that the OSRD wasn't actually funding as wide a range of R&D performers as was available. And that ultimately that was squandered opportunity. And that debate continued after the war, uh, especially after Vannevar Bush, who directed the OSRD published his seminal report, Science the Endless Frontier, which proposed a national research foundation to fund basic research in peacetime. And that debate was, do we wanna fund the best scientists or do we want to ensure that scientific research is being widely supported? Now, those two choices inevitably present trade-offs. I I can tell you from my own work that the OSRD's uh, R&D investments ultimately seeded technology hubs in the different places where it operated um, and had long run effects on both the direction and also the location of US invention, and then you know, downstream from that, entrepreneurship and employment in high tech industries. And those, those effects have actually played out all the way through, uh, through today, it appears. Uh, and so that's to say that the questions raised by, by Kilgore and Bush in the 1940s are real, they're still debated today. now in a crisis that might seem uh, like a natural choice to fund the most productive scientists and institutions uh, in the most productive places, these are your Silicon Valleys or your Route 128 areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, in normal times, objectives might be a bit broader. than uh, you know, uh, even then typical place-based policy you might, um, for example, not just be interested in lifting more boats with, with the rising tide, but there could also be strategic value, back to what I said earlier, in terms of investing in scientific infrastructure, in growing the number of regions that are r hubs, uh, not only for national competitors, but even in preparation for the next time that the scientific establishment needs to be, uh, let's say, called to service uh, in a crisis. So you know, pulling, drawing that all back around where I come down on this, and this, this, this moves us into the, you know, bit away from the, the, let's say the positive realm into the normative realm. I can see a case for that, but um, you know, for, for, for let's say a, a Gruber and Johnson type of policy where uh, an objective is to invest in more regions and and, and ensure that uh, R&D funding is a bit more evenly distributed. Right, across, and, and, across indeed, and yeah.
0: indeed one reason that, you know, uh, they're doing that, and again, uh, people aren't familiar with the plan. Uh, you know, regions would compete for funding and there is a there'd be a sort of a, a variety of criteria they would have to meet. But certainly one reason for doing that is because you want to spend if you want to sort of more broadly spend a lot of money on R&D, you have to justify it. And if it's being spent in a lot of states and a lot of congressional districts, it's much easier to gather uh, gather the political support to make that kind of thing sustainable. I mean, um it may seem like well that's just politics, but you know you 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 have to sell a plan on a national level, and I don't think there's anything wrong with anything wrong with trying to consider like how you would do it if that means oh, a- yeah absolutely. You, you, that means there might be uh, you know a uh, you know some more money spent in Keokuk, Iowa than there would be otherwise. Well, so be it.
1: Sure, we haven't even touched on the political economy of of science funding, and I think that's a great and, and, and intriguing question. And what's interesting, by the way, about let's say the Cold War era and, and the moonshot is. That Sputnik uh, actually galvanized public support for, uh, in much in of, of a similar way that, that World War II did, public support for uh, funding science and technology, because there was this uh, perception that uh, U.S. technological supremacy was threatened by the Soviet Union. Uh, whether that was actually true or not is, is a different question, but that was the public perception. And yeah, that, in turn, made it yeah, really lubricated, uh, I, I think, the... the political support for uh, increasing, let's say, NSF budgets, and just in general, government spending on R&D. And so the, you know, the question then becomes, is that what it takes? Does it take a crisis to uh, to, to galvanize that kind of public support? Uh, and that's a question that I'd linger on to. To finish up, what would you have policymakers keep in mind when they're thinking
0: about spending a lot more money on R&D?
1: Yeah, the first thing that I would be inclined to do is to advise uh, seeking input from the country's leading scientists and engineers. And you know, there are there are organizations that are channels for this kind of feedback. Uh, the National Academies, for example, is one such avenue. Um, but aggregating input from from a number of sources, I think, is valuable. Well, given how difficult it actually is to, you know, see the future and and, and pick winners and losers. And, you know, we we want to be careful um, in any kind of policy that uh, trends in that direction. Uh, Right. Get, you know, gathering input from uh, individuals who might be able to ride the the, the best judgment is one of the things that I would probably want to emphasize.
0: My guest has been Daniel Gross.
1: Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Jim. It's great to be here.